Hey y'all, today we're going to be talking about a really important topic. What's the secret to increasing the young vote on our podcast, Go Off? What makes this episode super special is we're going to be talking about the really critical essence of why young people haven't voted and what are we going to do about that and what are some strategies that we can take to increasing that and understanding the young minds. I'm Glow Robinson. I'm Caroline Bonnenberger. And we also have a special, our first student appearance. Hi, my name is Arshel Tullabach. I'm so happy to be here. And what are you studying? I study public relations and political science. Fantastic. We have a really exciting episode today. Not only do we have our Shell Telemach here with us right now, but we also are going to be listening to an interview of me talking to Professor DeBenedict Kessner, who is a new political science professor here at Boston University, about his research on political behavior and in his thoughts on why young people don't vote. We also will be featuring a presidential candidate on our podcast today, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. So if anybody is a Buttigieg fan, please stay tuned. And if not, it's totally fine as well. He just answers the question why young people don't vote. So we have a really exciting episode today. But before we get started, let's hear what the public had to say. I was born in the year 2000. And I think one reason that young people these days don't vote as much as maybe they should is because I don't think they feel that it has a direct impact on sort of the policies that are going to be implemented and things that are going to affect their lives. Like, for instance, I vote in Finland. That's where I'm a citizen of. And in Finland, like, it's it's very clear to me somehow that, like, I vote for this person and then they tally up the votes and that person, like, either wins or loses. Here, like, there's the electoral college. Even when you are directly voting for people, it's often, like, it's like no one really understands how the system works. Hi, I was born in 2000, and I think some young people don't vote because they don't know how to, especially being maybe out of state for college. They may not know how to get their votes in and therefore struggle to participate. I was born in 2000, and one reason why people, why young people don't vote in America, I would think, is because they're not uh, feeling sure about any of the candidates. So when they face not a single one that appeals to them directly. They might just feel that it's not worth voting since no candidate is worth voting for. I was born in 1998, and I think young people don't vote because there's kind of a wave of cynicism. There's just a belief that a vote doesn't really matter anymore. So I think young people in America don't vote because they really think that issues like healthcare, like immigration, that they don't have a, a solution and that they're kind of wasting their time by voting for this corrupt system. So I think there's just kind of a wave of uh, sort of pessimism that there's really no uh, viable solutions. So I think people just think that, you know, not voting, it doesn't really hurt anyone. So it's it's just kind of like, why take action when it just doesn't mean anything? Now, after hearing those clips, we've heard a lot of things like why voting doesn't have a direct impact on our lives. There's a lack of resources to go vote. People don't always feel sure about the candidates and young people are pessimistic. But before we actually get started with this conversation, I wanted to be enlightened. So I went to a political rally and you're about to hear Pete Buttigieg's answer to why he thinks young people don't vote. So I think uh, young voters are skeptical about the process, and not without reason, especially if you look at some of the manipulation with money in politics, gerrymandering, and other things that have made our democracy less democratic. But my message to young voters is that it'll never change unless you step up and change it, uh, that the biggest changes in our politics and social history have been brought about by young people, and that the longer you're planning to be here, the more you have at stake in decisions that are about to be made about your life, whether it's the economy or climate. And we hope we're going to see a phenomenal turnout, just as it went up dramatically among young people 
people from 2014 to 2018. I hope the young people really step up and perhaps change the answer from what it would have been in 2020. All right, so to get this podcast episode started, let's deconstruct what Pete Buttigieg said. Do we like what we had to say? Do we disagree? What are our thoughts as young voters? Well, I feel like his points as to why young people don't vote, they make complete sense that we don't feel like our voice matters, especially because of the fact that we don't have like a direct democracy and it feels it's easy to feel lost in the crowd of all these voices. Uh, that said, he didn't really discuss how we how to get young people to vote. He did kind of talk about getting young people to internalize the issues that they're going to be facing in the future. But how are we going to make those young people care about that? Like, it's easy to be like, hey, you're going to have to face these in the future. But like, I don't know if we're even looking that far ahead right now. I think one big thing is we we're always looking at why young people themselves aren't voting, but also who influences what young people do. It's their parents, it's their teachers. You know, there's a point where we could educate the electorate, right, and then get the individuals who are mo- more common to vote to begin to advocate and say that young people do need to vote and influence them that way because I think it's a lot of we're putting it on the young people but anything that we come to do is something that people before us have done before so they have to be civically engaged themselves to also motivate young people to vote so it's not I don't think it's necessarily a singular issue I think there are multiple factors that that play into each other. Mm Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely spot on. I think also some of the things that I've been reading, according to our research, about before we even get people to care is just some of the tactics involved with voting. Mm. So, for example, um, same day turnout. That's a huge issue Mm. in the sense of of, um, registering the vote day of versus registering beforehand. So in most states, you actually have to register ahead of time to actually cast your vote. And then there's absentee balloting and there's different ways to do that. But we're not educated. I don't know any formal process of us technically being told, okay, this is when you do this or this is when you do that. And the lack of resources is astonishing. I mean, I think there are a lot of resources, that, but the percentage of kids that are actually going to go look up, like, how do I do this mm-hmm. and actually know what's a tr- credible source or what's going to steal my money or things like that versus, you know, getting to it. So for a really good example about voting is in 2016 with Michigan, about 237,000 uh, votes for Hillary Clinton and there were 147,000 votes for Donald Trump. Um, who would have participated in the 2016 election if the state had offered same-day registration. The net gain of 90,000 more Clinton votes would have carried Michigan, but Trump won the state um, by fewer than 11,000 votes just because of same-day registration. That's crazy. It's crazy. It's absolutely insane. And so I think that's one tactic that's really important. Uh, I think another thing is changing address. So another aspect to navigate is when you turn 18, there is a big percentage of students that go to college during that time and that move away from that state. Like I'm from California. I'm from Pennsylvania. And I'm from Georgia. Exactly, right? So I didn't even know as a young voter that I could actually change my residence to vote Mm -hmm. in the state of Massachusetts. And the reason why you're able to do that is you just have to have a legal reason. The only issue that you run into is to make sure that you're not registered in two states. So you're not registering. I would not vote for in California and in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. It's making sure to change that. But there's not a societal push to be like, okay, get on that. They're not like, okay, well, here's the website to go to or, oh, this is really 
really easy because when I go online to the Massachusetts State House, they're like, oh, you need to actually turn this in in person. I'm like thinking, bruh, I'm not taking the tea all the way to the Boston <laughs> Commons right now. So that's just like a few uh, sample things to kind of get started with just some of the tactics involved before people can even start carrying on a deeper level. A common thing that I've definitely heard is that voting is a privilege. Do mm. you guys think that the idea of voting is a privilege is something that we should look at as a privilege or a right? Or how should we view the concept in general? I think voting is, there, there's in, the entire political landscape, it's built on privilege. And I think one of the biggest things about voting is we have to consider who has the privilege to be politically engaged. Um, and oftentimes you'll find that in poor communities, you're not going to see as many civically engaged people because it's not a top priority. So at that point, yeah, it's definitely a privilege where I'm not going to be concerned about voting and for my elected officials if I don't have the resources to even continue living my life to a standard of living that's conducive to living a good, quote unquote, good life. So I I do think that we have to look at who has the privilege to vote and what factors play into that. Money is usually a big part. The community in which you're in is a huge part. And also just whether in the past you've seen civic engagement. So it's a cycle too. If I didn't see that my parents were civically engaged, I'm probably not going to be either. Yeah, no, I think that's also a really, really good point. I think the, the for me as a person of color, I think one of the things that was kind of difficult is to see a lack of representation in our offices. And so I think to me that has always been something that has been hard to relate to among candidates is, well, how do you know you're going to care about my priorities? Like, you know, making sure that I get equal pay as a woman or, you know, issues like these. And so, you know, as you guys look into the political race or like the presidential race and you're noticing these things as a voter, as a young voter, voter. What are your priorities? It's a loaded question. That is a loaded question. My priorities, I think my priorities are that the world moves into, is moving toward functioning as a place that actually cares about people and not just people that can afford to care for themselves, but people as a whole. I think we need to be looking at healthcare and how healthcare is, you know, we are treating healthcare as though it's a privilege, but at this point with so many people in this country and so many people in the world, we have to start looking at healthcare as a right and implementing the means to make sure that people people who can't afford healthcare, the capitalist sense that we've turned it into now, and actually working toward a universal healthcare system that guarantees healthcare for every living individual. I think that's my priority and also the climate because, if, you know, at this point, if we don't have a world to stand on, every conversation that we're having is pointless. I totally agree with our show. I, I think what I'm looking for is how can we make the country that we live in a more perfect union? Like mm-hmm. what can be done to make us happier, to make mm-hmm. us wealthier? And by us, I mean all of us. Like how can we improve the lives of everyone in this country, no matter your status, uh, your privilege? Like how can we improve the lives of everyone? And there's many factors to that, as our show mentioned health, uh, climate's definitely a huge talking point that's going to increase uh, as the years move forward. But I know that that's something that people are also looking to improve in Mm. this union that we live in. No, I think this is all a really good conversation. And I think that our generation is really, I think, becoming more in tune with these issues. And I at least notice here, well, I mean, we're at 
Boston University. So it's, I guess, pretty liberal and it's pretty, you know, people are pretty, I guess, woke or up to date with these issues. But I also do notice a kind of de-interest in the political or like the presidential race among young people. Do you guys notice that as well? I feel like I've seen two types of people. One is the type of person who is fed up with American politics and the way Mm -hmm. that the system works and the way the system has been so polarized that they're just done. But then I've seen the other side of people who really are interested in this upcoming election and they're eager to get their voices heard and they're eager to select a candidate that they feel will help them in the future. I feel like there's that's it. There's two types of people, at least from our generation, that I've seen so far with that. Mm-hmm. I think uh, you you raised a good point about whether or not it's the presidential election that a lot of young people are being turned against toward. And I think what I'm seeing is there are a lot of more young people getting involved in local and state politics, mm-hmm. um, and which is incredible because local politics are the most local politics to us. Mm-hmm. Um, so seeing more young people get involved in local politics as evolved to national politics, I think that that has definitely been a shift in the political landscape Mm. there. Do you think that political candidates should do a better job of making people care about longer, long-term issues that we won't see impacts for? Mm -hmm. And that is the way that we should get involved in voting or feel like a more of a reason why to get involved with these elections? Or do you feel like it's a responsibility also in young people to be informed about these things? I think that it's a mix of the two. Definitely, climate change is obviously such a huge issue that we should be caring about. And it's important for every candidate, regardless of political party, to have some way to address that. I don't know if having it be like a giant point in their uh, campaign is like a good idea. Because here's the thing, we're already, at least in this point, we are very anxious about climate change. And we, as young people, want to do something about it. That's what we want our elected officials to do. And it's important for those elected officials to understand the anxiety that we, as young people, feel about climate change and to have something already in plan to address that. I don't think that they need to create more anxiety for that, but I think that they should understand the anxiety and the wants that we as young people want, and they should just be prepared to address that. Yeah, I mean, I think it'd be really hard for elected officials to educate people or elected officials, political candidates to educate people on all of these issues. But I do think that it is up to them to find, well, I don't know, is it up to them to, you know, boil down or make it a more digestible for young people, make politics, maybe it's making politics more transparent, not Mm -hmm. just for young people, but universally. Stopping with the inaccessibility to politics where you have to watch a three-hour debate to know people's views on Mm -hmm. the issues. That's inaccessible regardless of if it's because of time or if it's because it's on TV. There needs to be ways to just make politics, make government so much more accessible and Mm -hmm. I think that's one way we go ahead and educate young people not by having you know direct conversations between candidates and officials to young people I think it's just overall we need to fix the way that we're communicating about politics and government Mm -hmm. 
I love that point. Mm-hmm. I love that point so much because I think another thing that Caroline and I have touched upon in other episodes prior is mm-hmm. information overload mm-hmm. in the sense of as a young person, you know, we are on our devices. We, we see so many different facts pop up. We're expected to know so much information mm-hmm. for our classes, especially for in the academic sector. But then yet, you know, one more thing to keep on top of is, okay, who 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 was mean to who yesterday at the debate? Mm-hmm. And I think the debates have become a little bit like a sports game, a sporting event almost. Right. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, who's the meanest one? Who are we going to pick on today? Mm-hmm. And I think, to be honest, I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it. And the thing is, none of them elaborate really in depth of what they're actually going to no, do. No. It's just about who's going to say what. And I think that's another issue is not feeling like the accessibility as you said our shell mm-hmm. about wanting to care because you're just like okay I'm so glad that you didn't actually call this person something mean mm-hmm. it's all just a sensationalized act at this point I yeah. feel like we're starting to see that and call it out it's celebrity politics I you know every AOC is amazing, wonderful, but she's become a celebrity now. And I think with a lot of elected officials is you eventually become a celebrity and you are either two kinds of celebrities. You're the one that feeds into it or you're the one that's like, I don't want this attention. Bernie Sanders could very well be a celebrity, but that man is like, no, leave me alone. Put the camera away. But anyway, we're seeing like this over-sensualized political candidates and elected officials because why? It's engaging and we need like this fun and engage. We're turning it into a game and politics Mm -hmm. are now a game and it's a sports match. It's people are treating the debates like they're the Super Bowl or something. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really interesting. And I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing because that in itself is making politics more accessible. But I think accessible for the wrong reason. It's kind of almost drifting into a populist sense mm. of just appealing to, I guess, the greater majority, but I don't know if that's necessarily the best thing that can be done in this sort of situation. Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't even, I mean, I just watched the New York Times, like, you know, four minute clips of the debate, like the highlights, or, you know, just read some sort of like data visualization of like who said what and how many people were viewing it, something something along those lines. Because I don't have time as a student. And I think a lot of people don't have time to be like, okay, guys, let's clear out our schedules and watch the debate. I don't <laughs> think that's going to happen. I think that's starting to decrease a lot. And so I guess, you know, the idea of trying to get viewership, oh, let's make this more entertaining, let's try to trigger somebody, I think is kind of like how media is kind of saving itself. Which actually kind of brings me to my next question mm-hmm. um, towards, you know, how has media played a role in terms of, politics especially for young voters i think that's kind of a huge way just to kind of start off and get some mm-hmm. statistics rolling i first wanted to mention that just in general 21 percent of all eligible voters are between the ages of 18 to 29 and that's 49 million people and the second thing i also want to add is that in um the 2018 election we saw that snapchat helped over 400,000 young people vote and the aspect if they had a little register button and it helped people just automatically register and they encouraged all of their users to vote that day. So kind of pushing it on, like, here's a really great example. What have you noticed about the media and how can the media take an action in this? I think that the media can be used for good, especially when you're using the media that young people like. If you 
bring it back to I want to say I think it was the 2012 elections Obama took advantage of the free ads that he could place on YouTube like before a video and those ads were able to reach so many young people who used YouTube and it maybe sparked people into researching this candidate more and to seeing what he's all about. And this is also something that you see a lot with candidates who have a social media presence is, I guess, engagement with the with their constituents. Um, I mean, the media itself, I don't know if they reflect that sort of uh, reflexibility of interacting with the people it's supposed to be targeting. I don't know. In a world where we are moving away from traditional television and journalism and more towards social media... It's going to be interesting to see if that sort of media will be able to evolve to what is effective for us now. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, social media definitely is one of those things that has drastically shifted how we access politics and government. We have a we are currently witnessing a presidency where major important announcements about what's going on in that administration is being released via tweet. Uh, so we're definitely seeing that social media has run rampant throughout the political landscape now, and I think it's just a, like the next question or the next you know, step in all of this is how do we effectively use uh social media political communication to where it's not dangerous to where we're not you know if we're in the middle of a war or something the president doesn't go on and say i'm declaring war with x and x country and then that is a valid decree of war i i, I don't know i think it's it'll be interesting to see how social media does evolve to our current political landscape like caroline was saying i didn't even think of that yeah like being able to declare war like that because i'm just thinking back to like when uh roosevelt he you know declared war on the day of pearl harbor like on the Mm -hmm. radio Mm -hmm. like could that more or less be something that could happen i mean now the the laws are different now but Mm -hmm. i mean that could more or less spark something it could it could and that's what's terrifying is this these phones that we have they're uncontrollable we we i mean we have the messages that we send are almost are out of our control once sent so I hope there's never a day where we have a president that's tweeting about war and just slapping it on the timeline but again we currently have a president that could do that Mm -hmm. so it's interesting it's a little terrifying to be honest On a more positive note, this question Mm -hmm. is for you, Arshel, as a public relations major. Mm -hmm. What actions would you take to involve social media in a a campaign or to get uh, young people more aware about the issues and voting and things like that? Yeah, I think... um what you more these more modern ca- candidates are doing um like AOC does it and I know Ayanna Presley has done it and Elizabeth Warren have done it is they tend to use social media as a way to communicate with their constituents on a more personal level which I think is good it's personalizing the politics and bringing the people to the politicians as well so you're able to you know have that more direct access with them because a phone call is good but it's also very immediate if they're on an instagram live and then they're responding to your questions that you're putting up Mm -hmm. like those are ways that they can leverage these resources to to help them in the political landscape so yeah yeah making it more personal no i agree with that i AOC does those yeah. live yeah, streams Instagram on her, lives. Instagram. I follow them too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, but I mean, like I know that she does them and 
that's starting to replace that traditional thing where it's like, oh, write to your senator or email your senator even. Yeah. It's starting to replace them and make it way more immediate for you to ask your representative a question, mm-hmm. have them respond to it in, like, a matter of seconds. Yeah. And that, in turn, makes you have more trust in that representative and feel like they're really caring about you. So... Honestly, if like if you want to be popular amongst your constituents, you should be interacting them in a way like AOC does it in a more casual, open setting like Instagram, I feel. Yeah. My more final question kind of before we uh, hear a guest appearance uh, with the interview I did with uh, Professor DeBenedix Kessner um, is... You both come from more conservative areas of the country. You come from Pennsylvania and you come from Georgia or greater Atlanta area. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of curious for both of you is coming to BU or Mm -hmm. Boston is so liberal. What has been some of the biggest differences you notice among the populations and how they respond to politics and voting and what's it like here? Um, okay, so like where I'm from, it's suburban Philadelphia. Mm. It's pretty, it's like homogenous. I do feel though, ever since the 2016 election, people began to become more like just across the board, regardless of your party, people have become more politically active. My friend from home, Jonna B. Rao, she, uh, in response to like the 2016 election, she made a a nonprofit to get young people to register to vote. And I've seen similar things being done with more conservative kids that I know. Like, it's just people becoming more politically active. And then I come to Boston University, and people are still very politically active, but it's just, like, less conservative. It's just more liberal kids. Hmm. I think one big thing that I've seen is people are so... uh, Like, I think everybody coming to college has thought that everybody on this college campus is liberal and I've never been around um, like people that think that everybody thinks the same way that they do mm-hmm. and because you know, coming from the south I am very well aware that I am in the minority opinion in most of the places that I'm in so then coming here and everyone's just like yeah everybody on this campus is a liberal in my mind I'm like no of course not why would everybody here be a liberal of course like okay sure probably I'll, I'll be gracious to say like 65% of BU students and staff and faculty are liberal but I really do think that there's a a, a an entire pocket of conservatism that exists on this campus, and we tend to shut it out in conversations that we have about liberal versus conservative, Mm -hmm. and we always think everybody's a liberal. So that's one of the biggest shocks that I had coming here. I'm like, why is everybody so siloed into their way of thinking that they're completely neglecting that there are other views as well? And just to go off of what Arshel just said, people are nuanced not only in their personalities but their beliefs and if you present yourself as liberal there's maybe a little part of you like on one certain issue or like one certain part that is a little conservative but we just may not see it and Mm -hmm. 
it, I feel like, I don't know, back at home, like we know each other all pretty well, obviously, and we're more open to sharing those nuances that we have about each other back at home. Here, you don't see those nuances as much because I feel like you're afraid, you think that everyone thinks one way. Mm -hmm. So if you share maybe like a dissenting opinion, people won't be your friend anymore and then you'll be sad. Mm -hmm. But people are nuanced and... I don't, and that's something I need to remember too a lot coming on to like a, what I perceive to be a very liberal campus is that, yeah, people, they can think differently and people are people. They're not all the same. Mm. I like that a lot. I think, I think that's one of the biggest issues that I noticed in terms of like polarized um, issues on our campus specifically. And I think a lot of liberal campuses face that too, with a sense of how, how do you allow people that are known, that feel the minority to feel like they're open to be speaking. I think a lot of people are in the middle and it's easy for people to just kind of go with one extreme or the other and just side with that. Before we move on to the guest appearance, is there anything else you guys would like to add? Doesn't stop at voting. (laughs) True. Yes. All right. I'm Justin Benedictus Kessner. I'm a political science professor at Boston University. And so my question to you, professor, is what has your insights been about doing research in political behavior and election turnouts? So election turnout is obviously highly important for getting uh, to the win number for any campaign. Uh, A lot of campaigns will talk about persuasion and persuading voters as a counterpoint to turning out voters. And among youth voters, who we know uh, skew primarily to the left, uh, a lot of Democratic campaigns care more about turnout because they see the persuasion thing as as a little bit moot, and especially within primary campaigns where the candidates are uh, mostly towards the left in this election cycle, uh, there's a lot more to do with with turnout. And appealing to a youth vote is a huge area you can boost your your overall vote numbers. Youth turnout, though, is a really uh, tough thing to increase. Young voters tend to not vote at rates that are uh, actually pretty terrible. When I, when I talk to my students about this, um, none of them believe that the rate of youth turnout is as low as it is. So voters, when they turn 18 in the U.S., um, tend to turn out at such low numbers that it basically is not a constituency that most campaigns and general elections will even try to court. What we're seeing now in the 2020 race is actually really exciting because I think candidates are uh, actively looking for a youth vote or at least a, you know under 30 vote. The problem, of course, is that participating in politics is difficult when you, for instance, um, go to college and you live somewhere that's not where you grew up. It's hard to often see the impact of policies that government produces on daily life. And so that's one of the reasons that people would hypothesize that youth people, just younger people in general, don't turn out at the same rate because they don't see the stakes as quite as relevant for their daily lives. What we're seeing now in terms of young people having a movement around things like climate change is really exciting because it's mobilization around an issue that is going to affect them not just for longer, but more extremely because they're going to be around in 40 years when the effects of climate change are probably going to be more severe. And so it's exciting to see this uh, sort of like prospective voting or prospective activism among young voters. Um, So that's really exciting. What I think is interesting for presidential politics is that 
if we're if we're going to increase youth turnout, if you're going to increase turnout among people under 65, you got to both make the policies relevant and make voting and registering to vote easier. And so one of the like reasons that people might not register to vote and then might not vote is that you have to register in advance in most states in the US. And so if you show up on election day, if BU does some like cool voter mobilization rally on election day, that doesn't help anyone who's not registered to vote in Boston or who hasn't already sent in their absentee ballot from their home state or something. And so a lot of the reforms that are being debated now at the state level in different states in the US are designed exactly to get rid of this hurdle, which is registering to vote so far ahead of time. And I think this is especially important for young voters. And so it's a lot harder to get people from a younger generation to do those things in advance. It's a lot harder to see the excitement behind voting when you're not actually doing it on voting day, when you're registering to vote a month in advance, six months in advance, it's not as exciting. So. A lot of the reforms that are designed to increase youth turnout specifically are focused around this uh, decreasing the cost of registering to vote or decreasing this like need to plan it ahead of time. And so a lot of states have implemented what's called election day registration, which would be really exciting to see uh, in places like Massachusetts, where there's tons and tons of students who perhaps might live away from where they grew up and so might need to re-register to vote or register to vote for the first time after turning 18 in a place like Boston uh, or in whatever city they happen to be going to school. And so those kind of reforms would be especially important for younger turnout. Whereas there are other sort of election day reforms um, such as centralizing polling places or making, making sure that people can vote by mail on the day of or ahead of time. And those reforms, what we see is that they increase turnout, but more among older generations that for instance, might have mobility issues and wanna stay at home. And so different types of reforms can help different type of people turn out at higher rates. I guess my next question is, what has your observations been about understanding why you think young people don't care about the process? Well, I think a lot of the really salient policies that get debated, even in the Democratic primary right now, but also just on the, on the federal stage more generally, it's often hard to see what the impact would be on your daily life as uh, a person, say, under 26. So for instance, the, in the Democratic debates right now, they've spent the most time discussing healthcare. I'm gonna hazard a guess that most college students probably aren't paying too much attention to their health care because you're still young and healthy, for one, but also because uh, Obamacare, the ACA, a lot of the young people can still be on their parents' health insurance. And so I'm sure BU also provides some amount of medical services to students, I'm guessing. And so... It's, it's, a, it's a controversial issue. Okay, controversial issue. Well, I'm guessing that uh, based on my experiences when I was in college, when I was in grad school, getting medical care as someone under 26 is a little easier than once you're over that hurdle of sure. no longer being on your parents' insurance or having to like find a doctor not on campus yeah. these these things of like oh my gosh I have to travel to an appointment like out of my work day when I have a full-time job it suddenly becomes a little more difficult and so the types of policies that are getting debated at the national stage in the democratic primary right now like medical care are not especially relevant for someone who doesn't have to deal with that every day in their life and so people's self-interest could quite rationally not activate these strong feelings. They don't have a really extreme self-interest in say, Medicare for all at this moment. Even though you might believe it's the right thing to do, or you might not believe it's the right thing to do, and you might have strong feelings, it's hard to bring in that personal experience that can have people realize like, oh, I paid a huge medical bill last month and I'm going to go broke paying for that over the next year. And that's 
not something most young people who have insurance have to deal with. It's people who are past college age might have to deal with. Other policies that are going to get debated on the Democratic stage eventually have similar dynamics going on where the policy might not actually affect young voters until they're having a job full time or until they have a family. So things like childcare, things like like wage uh, wage differentials, like a minimum wage. It might affect young people right now to have a minimum wage. It can affect you a lot more when you have a family you're trying to support on a minimum wage job. Sure. Yeah. So I guess um, another question I have is as a student, I notice that we are apathetic because I think of the way the media is covered the government. Mm. What are your thoughts about that? Like student perception of government yeah. based on the media. So it's kind of this self-reinforcing cycle where people see young uh, youth turnout and turnout of people under 30, for instance, as not very high. And so the media is not going to try to address that constituency because it's not seen as important by many candidates. And it's not seen as important by people in government often who are trying to win re-election. And so the policies and the also the rhetoric separately, uh, so what they say on, on the news, what they say in their, their political speeches, might not always be targeted towards uh, younger demographic. And so that can totally reinforce this cycle of young people not caring about politics and being apathetic, not having their needs or their interests addressed in both speech and policy and that sort of reinforcing this which isn't great and it's like hard to break out of any cycle like that i would say the important thing to do is to make sure that people in government have a better idea of the fact that a young voters care about things and care strongly and what they care about so what the priorities are for younger voters and because we know from research from, from a lot of fantastic political scientists that legislative staffers, both at the federal and state level, as well as the legislators themselves, have a really poor idea of what their constituents want, it can be really important to try to change that perception, especially coming from a younger demographic. Why do you think that is? There's a lot of different reasons. One is the people who most communicate to their their the politicians who represent them are older people and people with more resources. So people who are wealthier, people have more time because they're, say, retired. and well, college students, I would, I would, <laughs> I would say, probably have more time than say someone in their like mid twenties to mid thirties who's like perhaps having kids for the first time. College students also are quite busy. <laughs> you guys have a lot of activities. You guys have a lot of classes and a lot of demands on your time, um, and so it's hard to spend the time saying like, oh, I should you know call my state legislator's office to discuss with them a bill going through the Massachusetts state legislature right now that would make texting while driving illegal. And the fact that that matters for every BU student, like a lot is probably not clear. I mean, people walk down Com Ave and almost get hit by cars like every day. And this is a policy that the Massachusetts legislature could change, but it's not clear to them exactly what their constituents want. And this, this happens across a variety of policies. They just, they hear from say these older and wealthier voters and they also hear from interest groups. So people like auto manufacturers are much more likely to contact a legislative office and say like, this is not in our interest or some group of companies that might say, okay, this will hurt our bottom line. This might hurt our, our financial situation. And so we're gonna advocate against some policy or for some policy. And so they're much more likely to get heard. And then legislators have a lot of different people who've talked to them. And if the balance is towards these sort of wealthier voters or these older voters, or it's towards these, these like moneyed interest groups and companies, they're much more likely to just think that's what their constituents think rather than 
go out and proactively, say, poll their voters and say, okay, what do my constituents actually want? Because none of them have the resources to do that. So my other question is, I've noticed also as being a young voter that a lot of my classmates, especially in Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. are really geared towards radical presidential candidates. Why do you think that is? I think that part of that can come from a lack of understanding of the political process sometimes. I think that I know that I find it often appealing to to think of more radical policy ideas as the best way to go about things. And what you see over like the life course is that a lot of voters will moderate or come a little bit towards the middle in their political opinions. And a lot of this might happen because their circumstances change. They might you know have a job rather than earlier in their life they did not have a, a steady income. Or they might have kids, which might change how they feel about say things like childcare or other policies. And so this could both change their views and they could realize how the political process is likely to work. And so um, if you think of this as like people trying to predict the future when they're predicting uh, or when they're they're deciding who they want to vote for, they could be strategic and say, I want to pick the candidate who's most likely to get any policy passed. Or they could pick the candidate who has their favorite policy. And if they pick the candidate who has their favorite policy, the problem is that this often could result in a lower chance of the policy actually getting passed. Because of what we know about how politics tends to moderate, we have a, you know, a, a democratic government that tends to pass policies in a majoritarian way, meaning there has to be a majority that supports things, or even a supermajority sometimes, it means that policies are going to moderate eventually in a chamber like Congress. And so it might be more advantageous to pick a presidential candidate who strategically is more likely to get a moderate policy through than a more extreme candidate who's going to, for instance, advocate for a really extreme policy, even though voters might prefer that extreme policy. And so what we see is that younger voters often, because of some sources of idealism or just strong feelings or a lack of knowledge about process of how these things actually work in reality might support that more extreme candidate in a less strategic way whereas more strategic voters might realize oh this policy is going to get moderated anyways eventually once it comes to government that said i can see the appeal totally of more extreme candidates because you don't want a moderate policy and moderate policies aren't inspiring often so i think that the the key for more moderate candidates to inspire younger voters is to make it appealing, make something other than just the moderation and the process-driven reasons for pursuing moderate policies appealing. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the things I've also noticed too. Well, I think these are actually on like all the questions I really had. Is there anything else you'd like to add or inform the youth about? Uh, yeah, so, so I guess my one like wish for younger voters, both, you know, of my generation and Gen Z, is that Younger voters realized how much non-federal policy can matter to them too. What would be really exciting is seeing younger voters show up in local elections. We had local elections in Boston last week and turnout was something around like 10 to 12% of the population. In Boston, a highly educated, a relatively wealthy uh, town. And that's really sad to see because the policies that local governments make have an immediate impact on everyone's lives. A couple thousand BU students showing up to vote can swing an election completely. One of the city council candidates was decided by a margin of 10 votes. And so that means that if 10 more BU students had showed up, it could have changed the election outcome, let alone thousands of BU students. And so the impact that younger voters might have by turning out to vote, especially in 
towns like Boston where there's a lot of young people could be so much more than just voting in federal elections where it's not quite clear what the differences are from a couple thousand votes. Wow, thank you so much. This has been <laughs> such a pleasure. I'm glad to help. All right, so that was Professor DeBenedict Kessner. Um, he's a political science professor here at Boston University. And so he covered some really interesting topics. Uh, he talked about why people don't vote historically. He talked about media impressions, and he talked about radical politicians and young people being attracted to that. So with those topics of what he had to say. What are our thoughts about those issues? Yeah, I mean, I definitely, the the view of why young people aren't voting, the local politics and the constant moving around is a huge push in that. A lot of uh, students, when they go to their respective college campuses, they don't register to vote in theirs. And I think a lot of people, we don't cite what the actual reason for that is. It's because a lot of us might be from swing states, like Georgia's becoming progressively more purple. So I would rather see if I could, you know, sway the vote in Georgia as opposed to voting blue and blue, um, independent or blue in uh, Massachusetts that has been historically blue since the dawn of the United States coming to be. And I think that I think it's really cool, like uh, kind of what uh, the professor said is that people like we've said earlier are getting invo- involved with young with um, more movements and more policies that they care about and taking action in that aspect and trying to further the conversation conversation. Mm. And so I think there's a lot of hope, um, especially with the 2020 race of how this is going to go down and what people are going to be believing um, and what they're going to be doing. So I'm really excited about that. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Arshel. Absolutely. It's thank you, guys. Such a great. pleasure. Yeah. So to conclude our episode today, we thought it would be most appropriate to talk about TurboVote. It is not the same as TurboTax, because that is what I originally thought. But TurboVote is actually, will if you just enter in your information, which is all confidential according to their website, TurboVote.org, you will actually see where you are registered, and it will allow you to register in your new location. And it's all online. It's really easy. It's free. And we highly recommend that you do that as soon as you can. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Please find us on Instagram and Facebook and uh, stay tuned. This podcast is affiliated with WTBU at Boston University.